Hey, this is a Hakawati production. My guest today is what we'll call an entrepreneur of knowledge. I'd also say he's a great philosopher. He's a world renowned anthropologist. He's also an author, photographer, and botanical explorer whose work has inspired films, documentaries, and television shows. He first captured the world's attention in 1985 with his best selling book, The Serpent and the Rainbow. It was about the zombies of Haiti. Yes, that's right. That book was made into a film directed by Wes Craven. And if you're a film buff, you know that's the same guy who created A Nightmare on Elm Street and the Scream series, among other classic horror films. Since then, Wade's incredible photographs of fascinating cultures around the world have appeared in National Geographic and dozens of books and magazines. He's a professor of anthropology at the University of British Columbia in Canada. His latest book, Magdalena River of Dreams, is based on his travels to the country of Colombia. For most of us, Colombia probably conjures drug cartels and people like Pablo Escobar. But for Wade Davis, Colombia is home to the greatest ecological and geographical diversity on the planet. And it's also a country that has many lessons for the rest of the world. Joining us from Canada, please welcome the one and only Wade Davis. Wade Davis, welcome. Thank you, Nai. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Very well, thanks. So, humans are facing some pretty challenging times right now all over the world. Um, we have technology taking over every aspect of our lives. We have a pandemic that's preventing people from being the social creatures that they are. And then we have all these geopolitical changes happening. From your perspective as an anthropologist, what's going on in the world right now? Well, that's a big question. And it sort of reminds me of sort of the commencement speech or a spe speaker at a university who always begins his remarks or her remarks by saying, essentially, the world's a mess. It's up to you to fix it, which is sort of the biggest nonsensical thing to lay on a group of young people. Because if the world is indeed messed up, it wasn't their fault. <laughs> it's not up to them to fix it. I mean, I mean, I, you know, what graduating class from a college or, or what generation of people have ever lived through an era free of of trauma and turmoil. Uh, look at the bloodstained 20th century. And so we, you know, we have these changes um, that are, are both of historic significance, but then we have the larger issues which are truly existential in, in, in character, such as climate change, uh, the, 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 the language crisis, the fact that we're living through an era when by all academic consensus, fully half the languages of humanity Um, are not being taught to children. So we're, we're in, a, in a deeper sense losing, or at least putting at risk, uh, by definition, half of humanity's social, ecological, spiritual um, knowledge. And none of this has to happen. So we, you know, I think I try in my own, in my own mind to sort of separate out the, the, the events, which however traumatic in the moment, uh, will in the end be seen as almost ephemeral, Of, from those deep currents of history that will truly um, uh, impact the human destiny. Well, that's a lot to handle for anyone. And you're right, it's so sad um, that, that this is being put on the shoulders of the younger generation. Um, but let's turn our attention to your part of the world, Canada, but mainly the United States. You wrote an article last August for Rolling Stone magazine called The Unraveling of America, which, by the way, was one of their most popular articles um, in the whole entire year, I think. But a lot, of ha a lot has happened over there, both with uh, COVID, the effect on the economy, politically, of course, it's been quite a circus. Um, is it The Unraveling of America? Well, that piece, you know, had a, it became a story in of itself. You know, it, it, it was, um, uh, it had a success that was un unanticipated. It, it, it generated over 5 million viewers on their site um, and on social media, over 362 million social media impressions um, within a couple of months. And I think it's because it looked at COVID not as a medical issue or an issue of morbidity or mortality, but through the cultural lens. And it really asked the, the question, what's become of America? Um, and 
And the truth of the matter is, at that moment in time, Americans had kind of awoken to the reality that they were living essentially in a failed state ruled by a dysfunctional government at the helm of which was a buffoon of a president who was advocating the use of bathroom disinfectants for the treatment of a pandemic disease that he intellectually could not understand. And it struck me that that the, the, the challenge for America is that it continued to look into the mirror and see only its exceptionalism and didn't really see that the the mirror had shattered and that the shards of glass were on the floor around the feet of the country. You know, all, all, all empires are born to fall. All kingdoms are certain to die. Uh, the, the 15th century belonged to the, um, the, the Portuguese, the 16th to the Spanish, the 17th to the Dutch, the 18th to the French, the 19th to the British. And the British Empire reached its greatest geographical extent as late as 1935. And you can imagine these, these Brits all around the world swirling their gin and tonics, um, blithely unaware that the empire, uh, empire was certainly over by the Diamond Jubilee, in a sense, and certainly was bled white and bankrupt by the Great War. And so it's almost as if Americans awoke to a new era where the hinge of history had moved, had opened to Asia as, you know, frontline workers were waiting for emergency supplies of basic um, health uh, goods to be flown in from China. It's it's like the British Times, uh, I mean, the Irish Times remarked in a a very prescient um, piece in saying that there have been many uh, emotions expressed about America uh, since the Second World War, but one that had never been expressed until COVID was was pity. And indeed, that's how much of the world had begun to look at America. You know, at the time, there were 2,000 people dying a, a day, which, you know, of course, was dramatically surpassed. Nobody could have anticipated that half a million Americans would die during this ep- epidemic. Um, and And really what it was trying to, to suggest was not to gloat, um, not to to ridicule America or, or even be negative America. I, I always thought of that piece as more of a love letter uh, or an inter, like a family intervention where you, you can't, you know, the first step to re, on the path of rehabilitation is when you actually look in the mirror and see not what you think you are, but what you've become. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. If you go back, for example, to 1940, uh, even with Europe already ablaze, um, the United States of America was a demilitarized society. Bulgaria and Portugal had bigger armies in 1940 than the United States of America. And then as the war called upon the country to become the arsenal of democracy, and as to the credit of Americans, they really did save civilization. You know, American industrial strength together with Russian blood uh, destroyed the Nazis. And, and had that not happened, we would have gone down a dark hole of unimaginable horrors. Um, and and the industrial might unleashed by America defies imaginings. For every five pounds of equipment, uh, goods of all sorts that the Japanese Empire of the Sun got per capita to a frontline soldier in that war, the Americans got two tons across 13,000 kilometers of open ocean. You know, we, we, we produce Liberty ships by the day. The record for building a Liberty ship was four days, 17 hours and 18 minutes. Um, B-24s with 1.5 million parts pumped out by the hour. Um, enough trucks to send half a million without thinking to the Russians, half a million Jeeps to the Russians, a million miles of wiring to the Russians, 34 million um, uniforms to the Russians. Russian troops vanquished the Nazis, but they marched into Berlin on boots made in America, 16 million pairs altogether. The the industrial uh, output of the United States of America was simply astonishing during that war. And in the wake of the war, with Europe in ashes and Japan prostrate, uh, America emerged triumphant, um, unscathed. Uh, 5% of the global population producing 50% of the world's economy, including 95% of the world's automobiles. And that wealth allowed for a democratization of capitalism, if you will. Uh, uh, The 1950s were by no means a golden era, certainly if you were black, a woman, or if you were gay. But in purely economic terms, there was a kind of golden age of capitalism in which 
all people were lifted and such that there was a kind of a, a treaty between capital and labor, allowing for the weekend, allowing for the middle class, um, whereby a man in a factory job could buy a home, buy a car, put his kids through good public schools and look forward to a promising future. It was at a time of income um, equity. You know, the, the, the marginal tax rates in the 1950s were 90%. That didn't mean that the rich all paid 90%, but the message was there. You know, a, a CEO of a major corporation, my own father-in-law who ran Bell & Howell Company in the 1950s, his salary would have been perhaps 20 times that of a white-collared staff. Well, today those discrepancies would be more to four to 500 times that. Today, the top 1% control more wealth than the bottom half of the society, which has more debt than assets, whereas the top 1% controls $1 trillion of assets. So this income inequity also occurred during, during an era when that, that social contract was violated by globalization. And globalization, as any working man or woman can, can clearly see, is just a fluffed up term to describe capital on the prowl in search of cheap labor. And so as the factory jobs va vanished, you suddenly were left behind this disaffected um, almost abandoned cohort of the population. And suddenly you saw the social indices of decline. You know, the fact that divorce rates went up above 50% in the 1960s. We celebrated the individual at, with iconic intensity, but at the, at the sacrifice of community and the very idea of, of society. You know, families embraced the obsession with work, slogans like 24-7, implying total dedication to the workplace. And then people wondered why the average American youth by the age of 18 had spent three years watching a video screen contributing to an obesity epidemic so severe that the Joint Chiefs of Staff called it a national security uh, crisis. Uh, the, the leading uh, cause of car uh, of, of of death for those under 50 no longer being car accidents, but overdoses from addictive uh, prescription drugs. A, a country that thought of itself looking in the mirror as being so content was consuming two thirds of the world's antipsychotic drugs, uh, and so you you had this kind of. Um, chasm developing between the image that America had of itself and what its reality was. So for example, you know, when, when you have people in the millions advocating the building of a wall to keep out desperate mothers and children uh, on the Mexican border, mothers and children that were fleeing dislocations ultimately caused by the United States, both by its, uh, its, uh, uh, anti-communist uh, rhetoric and, and foreign practices in, in the 1980s under, under Ronald Reagan, which had distorted um, the social structures of, of Guatemala and Nicaragua and El Salvador and, and other and Honduras, but also the ongoing American obsession with cocaine, which fuels the uh, the, the, the drug trafficking channels, which are now the gangs and, and cartels that are disrupting life in those communities. And when we build a wall, it, that is not simply a, a kind of economic and political folly. It's an act of treason because it's betraying the cardinal beliefs of your country, you know, the the welcoming of the huddled masses, masses. You know, myths aren't old stories. Myths are moral charters, right? And the, the myth of the huddled masses doesn't mean that every immigrant group, group was welcome in America. As we, you well know, every immigrant group has always had to claw its way ashore, but it got on shore. And the myth is that if you get here, you'll find a way. And to shut that down becomes an act of treason. And when, when the, the, the rights of the individual to own a personal arsenal of weaponry trump even the rights of children to live and, and, and breathe freely in their schools, such that hundreds of kids have been shot in school, you know, the fact that um, Americans' uh, obsession with personal arms is so astonishing. I mean, on D-Day 1944, June 6th, when, when the Allied forces, um, you know, three nation states, Canada, um, Britain, and the United States invaded Fortress Europe, taking on the Nazis, on that day, 4,414 soldiers on the Allied side were killed. 
Well, in April of, 19, of 2019, the first three months of that year, Americans had killed that many of each other simply with handguns. So you, you, the, the, the point the article was trying to make was simply, you know, let not, not to gloat about the decline of America. On the contrary, it was a calling out for America to reinvent itself. But you can't re reinvent yourself until you see what you've become. And America had become... Um, a place where, where um, the truth had become relative. You know, it, it, it had become so self-obsessed uh, uh, that reality became one's personal opinion. Um, you you had people uh, flocking to uh, beaches and and boardrooms in defiance of all scientific logic in terms of controlling the pandemic. And that was being de described as an act of defiance and strength when it was actually a revelation of the weakness of the people who lacked the stoicism to endure the pandemic or the fortitude to defeat it. And a, pure, a, a true sign, I think, of American decadence, in a sense, was the decisions made by people to elect both in 2016 and come very close to electing in 2020 a man who's a bone spur president, a bone spur hero with a backbone of a bully whose only credential for the most important job arguably in the world in terms of geopolitical stability was his willingness to, to rationalize their hatreds, uh, empower their grievances, and indulge their fantasies. Uh, and when a, when a democracy does that and casts aside its its vote, its precious vote, um, with such with such self-absorption, self I think that almost defines a notion of decadence. It's, it's certainly what Oscar Wilde meant when he said that America was the only country to go through birth, birth to uh, decadence without passing through civilization. And again, none of this is to gloat. I mean, if and when the hinge of history truly opens to the Asian century, uh, you know, and, and with, with perhaps China dominant, uh, with its policy towards ethnic minorities, its contempt for democracy, it, it, its social monitoring of its own citizens, will certainly be nostalgic for the best years of the American century. But if America doesn't look itself in the eye, um, the article was arguing, um, that, 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 that shift in the power center of the world will indeed occur. And, you know, this isn't to, again, denigrate America. I mean, the sad thing is American democracy has inspired millions. Um, you know, uh, the, the problem is that, you know, at one point we had a president, George Washington, who couldn't tell a lie. Now we suddenly had one at that time in August who couldn't recognize the truth. You know, if Abraham Lincoln had asked for charity um, um, uh, for all and malice towards none. In Donald Trump, the Americans had a president who practiced charity for none and malice toward all. Um, and, and my argument was, let's remake America and remember it as the land of Lincoln, as the land of Walt Whitman, the poet, uh, the Grateful Dead, if you will, the great rock and roll band. And, and so it was really, that article was really just trying to, in a sense, hold a, a, a mirror to what America had become, you know, a country that practiced and celebrated education and a free press as the, as the foundations of democracy, as Benjamin Franklin wrote, suddenly, if it looks at itself, it sees itself ranking 45th in the world in terms of press freedom. I could name you 10 cities of America, Dallas, New York, Kansas City, Atlanta, Los Angeles, New Orleans, Detroit, that do not graduate 50% of their senior class from any high school in the public school system. You know, a, a country that once, as I said, celebrated the huddled masses of the world is now turning away children at its border, tearing apart families such that as of October of 2020, there remain 400, 545 children who, whose parents and the whereabouts of those parents were unknown. And, and, and so you, you suddenly, um, you know, you had this social democracy that was falling apart. And I tried in that article also to suggest the countries that at least at that time were doing well with the pandemic were the very social democracies that, that saw the community as being essential. You know, I, I described um, uh, a, a kind of an allegory um, comparing Canada to the United States that had a great impact. You know, Robin Williams, a great late comic 
quip that to live in Canada um, is like living uh, in an apartment above a meth lab. And, you know, if you think of getting your groceries in, you know, in the United States, there's generally a chasm between you and the um, clerk, um, the checkout clerk that of education, race, class, uh, 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 you name it, that is almost unbridgeable. And, and when you go to get your groceries in Denmark or in Sweden or in Norway or certainly in Canada, New Zealand, Australia, you don't really feel that chasm. And the reason for that is very simple, that you know that the clerk knows that she's or he get, is getting a decent wage because of the unions. And you know that she or he knows that probably your kids go to the same public school. These are public schools that are neighborhood-based, but not funded by property taxes, which favor the children of the affluent, but by state grants that give every kid an equal chance to move up in life. And then the third element, which is the most essential, is the fact that the clerk at the, till, at the till knows that you know, that they know, that if their kids get sick, they will get exactly the same medical care as your kids and the prime minister's kids. And those three strands woven together become the social fabric of democracy. This is one thing Americans do not understand, that healthcare has nothing to do with medicine. Healthcare has nothing to do with morbidity and mortality. Healthcare is all about social solidarity. It's all about sending a message to everybody within the nation state that they matter, that they count. Um, you know, Canada's no perfect place, as you know, but but having lived here, now do you know that the 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 strength of our healthcare system is also its flaws, you know, the the because it's geared not to the individual but to the collective and certainly not to the private investor who views every hospital bed as if a rental property. In Canada, we 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 have a sense of consilience and and cooperation you would never have a Canadian politician running against Ottawa, for example, it would be an, a psychotic act. Our government is us. We are our government. And at the same token, we have the sense to, to, to understand wealth is not the, the wealth of a nation is not the currency accumulated by the lucky few, but rather the strength of the social relations and the bonds of reciprocity that link all of us in, in, in common purpose. That is what allows a social democracy to function. And of course, social democracy, despite what Americans often think of it, is not communism light. It's not socialism. Social democracy is simply dynamic entrepreneurial capitalism that simply focuses on everybody in the culture and every tier of society. And of course, as everybody does better and everybody has health care and they have the confidence of knowing that their kids are going to good schools, uh, it makes everybody happier and tensions drop. And there's an overall kind of, you know, feeling in the society that is that is much more positive. And this is a key to tranquility, stability and peace. That's a lot. And I take it you're happy that you're living in Canada and not the U.S. But I know you recently wrote an op-ed for Canada's Globe and Mail about Colombia's recent new law that grants legal status to Venezuelan refugees. And you basically suggest that this humanitarian gesture should serve as an example to the rest of the world. And of course, as you mentioned, to the U.S., whose policies have been pretty brutal um, for for migrants who've gotten stuck in the system. In the Middle East, we've seen a very large number of refugees, especially coming from Syria. Do you think that all countries should just grant legal status to refugees um, and, and have an open door policy? No, I mean, I mean, uh, first of all, you, you know, one cannot make sweeping generalizations about something that is so um, uh, complex and and uh, unique to every particular historical uh, moment in time and and convergence of historical forces. I mean, what happened in Colombia is is remarkable, and and uh, you know, I, I am a Colombian citizen. I was made an honorary Colombian citizen by the Nobel laureate. Juan Manuel Santos, and I've been devoted to that country since I was a boy. I think the, the remarkable thing to remember about Colombia is that, you know, it has been tormented by 50 years of conflict, uh, but that conflict would not have lasted a day without the illicit profits of the cocaine trade. And the, 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 the again, I don't mean to point the finger at the Americans, but you have this kind of crazy situation where after 50 years of a war on drugs, there are more people 
in America using more drugs and worse drugs and worse ways than ever before. You have this crazy, crazy contradiction of a war on drugs that costs $60 billion a year, even as Americans are snoring up their noses 165 tons of cocaine and generating $50 billion a year to the criminal uh, underground that, that markets the drug. Um, the, the Colombian war in the last year of peace, for example, the FARC, the main group that made peace in Havana, uh, were down to perhaps 6,000 cadre, mostly teenagers in search of a meal. And yet that year, they nevertheless generated $600 million U.S. Um, through extortion and drug trafficking. Well, if you give me the, 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 the Beverly Hills Boy Scouts and $600 million, I can wreak havoc in Southern California. And the amazing thing about the conflict is that most Colombians, of course, have never seen, let alone used cocaine. And through all those bloody years where everybody suffered, 220,000 dead at least, 100,000 missing, 7 million people displaced from their homes, 5 million Colombians forced or uh, elected to leave their, their country. Through all that time, there were never more than 250,000 combatants on all three sides of the war in a nation of 50 million people, the vast majority of whom, of course, were just caught in the vice of war, like all civilians. Uh, and yet through all that time, uh, Colombia maintained its social democracy, its democracy and its civil society, greened its cities, grew its economy, created millions of acres of national parks, uh, sought restitution with indigenous people, unlike any nation state, and kind of paved the way for an economic renaissance, as now with the peace, two generations of young Colombians forced to flee the war uh, are returning from every capital city with skill sets in every conceivable endeavor. You know, a way of thinking about that is, can you imagine if Canada, a country that you know well, had policies of drug consumption in bars and boardrooms across the country, laws that facilitated a black market trade, but sanctions of those uh, of that trade so lax that it did nothing to curtail that trade, such that 85 million Americans were forced to flee their homes. Well, that's indeed what happened in Colombia. And what we're seeing in the, one of the things that makes the gesture of uh, President Duque all the more remarkable is that the peace treaty that was signed in Cartagena in 2016 had several hundred clauses in it, most of which were about social and economic development for the poor. Um, and the price tag of that process was 45 billion US dollars at a time when oil prices uh, had plummeted, which is Colombia's major source of revenue, even as the nation was beginning to deal with the, the biggest humanitarian crisis in the history of the Americas. And that was the, the 1.7 million, close to 2 million Venezuelans who have fled into Colombia. So for Colombia at a time when it needs every dollar that it can muster to implement the terms of a peace agreement upon which the stability and hopes of a country rest, it nevertheless reached into its heart, not rationally, not with any kind of economic maneuvering, not with any kind of ulterior motive, simply to give a welcome. I mean, there were practical considerations. You, you, you needed to know for security reasons who these people were. It was better to have their names than to have them remain in the shadows. But ultimately, this was a pure humanitarian gesture, uh, unequaled. It, arguably in the history of the world. And in part, it was a, a thank you. It was, retro, it, it, was, it was payback for the hospitality that Venezuelans in a time before their economy and their society had fractured uh, at, at a time of Colombia's great need where many Colombians had to flee into Venezuela. So there's some reciprocity here, but it really is the, the hand of brothers reaching across a border. And I don't, no, and I can't say what relevance it has to the very different situation in the Middle East, but surely it is a symbol of hope for all of humanity. So your latest book is called Magdalena, River of Dreams. How many books have you written? I think that's number 23, but I don't really keep track. <laughs> wow. Um, okay. But why did you write this one? Since you've written so many other books, you've done so many things. Um, why did you write this book? Well, this this book kind of began, you know, in a serendipitous way, as all book projects do. Um, 
I had written a book called One River, El Rio, which was um, a, really an account of my travels in Colombia as a botanical explorer. And it was also the biography of my professor, the greatest Amazonian explorer of the 20th century, uh, who himself was a beloved figure in Colombia. Uh, mountains bear his name, and he's, he's widely acknowledged as one of the greatest scholars in the history of that country. And the book came out in 2002 in a beautifully translated Spanish edition, which really isn't my book. It belongs to the late uh, poet uh, Nicolas Sesquan, a wonderful man who put his own work aside to translate this book in such an elegant way. And you wouldn't think that a sort of a 700-page book on botanical exploration would generate much interest in a country at war with itself. But that was the very point, that here was a book 700 pages long uh, that didn't have a mention of the war, that spoke of a, of a Columbia uh, from a time of peace when I had been free to travel anywhere my feet took me and sleep wherever my hat fell, enveloped by the warmth and, and wonder of the Colombian people. And for young people, that book, which began with a kind of a modest edition of 500 copies in Spanish, um, became like a map of dreams for two generations unable to travel within their own countries. And unbeknownst to me, it became this massive hit book, a cult book within the country. And um, on the basis of that, I, it, it had inspired um, a wonderful man who ran one of Colombia's great companies, Grupo Argos, a Fortune 500 company, um, to fund a team, teams of botanists and photographers and writers to go to each of the five major regions of Colombia, the coast, the Andean Cordillera, the western lowland forest, the Choco, the great eastern plains, and of course the Colombian Amazon, which is the size of France, to write books on each that would be not sold but gifted to every library in the country to send a message to a new generation of young people that theirs wasn't a country of war and violence and conflict and drugs. It was, in fact, as it is, the country with the greatest geographical, ecological, and biological diversity on the planet. In Colombia, there is no place more than a day removed from every known ecological niche to be found on the planet. Um, you know, botanists discover new species of plants with every outing into the forest. Um, uh, it, it is just a world of natural wonders and beauty unsurpassed by any other nation state on, on, on earth. And so I was asked to come down to help promote some of these editions. And one day at lunch, I simply said, okay, we've covered the landscape. Let's write about the rivers. And what began as a sort of a an illustrated coffee table book. It just captured my imagination and it grew into a 400 page book, which is really like both the biography of Colombia through the metaphor of its major river, the Mississippi, if you will, of Colombia, a corridor of commerce, but also the fountain of culture and poetry, music and prayer. Uh, and it becomes a, both a biography of the country, but also in the words of my good friend Hector Abad, one of Colombia's great writers, a love letter to a nation. And what the book attempts to do, it, it does not in any way shy away from the violence. It explains the violence, how it happened, why it happened. Um, uh, but it does so with empathy and understanding. And at the same time, the book holds the mirror to all that is wondrous in the history of this remarkable country and the beauty and the wonder of its people. And um, I think that's an important thing because the enemy of peace is cynicism and pessimism. And it's difficult for us, although I think someone from Beirut or, or certainly from uh, the Palestinian reaches of the Middle East can understand the psychological impact of, of being seen as a pariah nation. And that's how Colombia was seen. And so for two generations of young kids, you know, um, ridiculed in a sense as they traveled simply because they were from the land of Escobar. Um, the, 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 the book, it, it, it holds, holds a mirror to all that's glorious in the country. You know, I, I was very fortunate on that, you know, as a young boy that um, my mother, I don't know why or how, she was a relatively modest but determined Canadian woman, told me in the summer of 1967 that Spanish was a language of the future. And she worked as a secretary in an elementary public school all year to raise enough money to allow me to join a group of schoolboys that a teacher was taking to Cali, Colombia in the summer of 1968. And at that time, most Canadians had never been in an airplane. So the South American destination was terribly exotic. 
And I was the youngest of the group at 14 and the luckiest because whereas the 16-year-old boys spent the summer with wealthy families in a, the sweltering streets of Cali, I was billeted by chance with a more modest family up in the mountains at the edge of trails that reached west of the Pacific. And for uh, two months, I never saw any of the Canadian lads who, unbeknownst to me, succumbed to what the Colombians called mamitis or homesickness, you know. And uh, not only did I not become homesick, I felt quite to the contrary, like I had finally found home. And it was kind of this classic Colombian scene, you know, children too numerous to keep track of, uh, an indulgent father, a grandmother who muttered to herself uh, on a deck overlooking flowers and fruit trees, an angelic sister who carried me and her brother home more than once half drunk to a, a, a mother kind beyond words who stood at the garden gate feigning anger as she tapped her foot on the stone steps. For two months I was embraced by the wonder and the warmth of a people with a strange passion you know, in a, 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 a quest for life, uh, but a quiet understanding of the frailty of the human spirit. And so, as I say, whereas the other boys, uh, many of them uh, missed their home, I felt like I had finally found it. And so in the Colombian spirit, I encountered something that inspired uh, an entire lifetime of wandering, you know, uh, as an anthropologist, as a student of culture, um, as a storyteller uh, who tells the stories of humanity. Right. And I was going to ask you about that. Um, you've done so many, you've done some pretty wild things. Um, one of your earliest, most famous adventures was in Haiti, where you studied the zombie culture there, which I have yet to read more about. It's quite interesting. Um, you've studied psychoactive plants in the Amazon. You drank blood with nomads in Kenya. Um, it's all stuff of movies. Um, you were also a National Geographic explorer. So you've been to uh, far off places, including uh, the far north in Canada. So I've heard you call yourself to encompass all these things, an entrepreneur of knowledge, because I know you kind of followed this path without any kind of uh, goal of, you know, working for someone or having a specific kind of job. Explain what you've meant by by that term, entrepreneur of knowledge. Well, you know, we, we always say to young people that life is linear, that you go from A to B, and if you skip C and D, you never get to the rest of the alphabet. And anyone who's lived in a full life knows that life is made up of these serendipitous moments where you have an option and you have to make a choice. And the important thing is to find some inner compass so that you own those choices and you're not responding to uh, or making decisions um, based on the thoughts of those around you, be them teachers or parents or friends or the society itself. Because the greatest creative challenge in life is to be the architect of your life. And in older age, I'm 67 now, I notice that bitterness always comes to those who look back on a life of decisions imposed upon them. And contentment in old age always comes to those who have, um, in, in a sense, been the architects of, of their life. Uh, as I grew up, I never could imagine, and I don't think most young people can imagine, any vocation that I could try on like a coat and that would envelop me all of my life. Um, uh, I've always seen work as just a metaphor, a vocation just as a lens through which to experience life and only for a time. You know, the word job has a, which we, everybody's looking to have a job. But it's important to remember that the word job comes from the medieval French word gobert, meaning to devour. I prefer never to have a job, but to work harder than anyone I know. And, and uh, that's what I think that phrase, entrepreneur of knowledge, really refers to. And the word work has a more um, positive ring to it because it comes from the Anglo-Saxon kind of root to create and, 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 and inspire. And so I always say to young people, never have a job, but work harder than anyone you know. And one of the things that is um, very consequential when you don't work for somebody and, and you are self-employed, you never mistake activity for results. And that's one of the reasons that I've certainly been able to be as productive as I have, because I've never wasted time in the ephemera of, of, of the workspace. Um, but, you know, what's always driven me, um, you know, Hemingway said a, a number of interesting things. He said, he said, anyone who thinks that writing is easy is both uh, is either a, a liar or a bad writer. Um, writing's hard. And, and for me to sustain the passion that drives a manuscript, I have to really believe that there's a mission to that work, you know. So 
I spent 12 years writing a book into the silence because I wanted the world to know um, what my grandfather and his generation had endured in the horror of the Great War in particular, and then in the subsequent quest for the summit of Everest. You referred to the zombie research, uh, which actually did result in a Hollywood movie. I think it's the only PhD thesis that was ever made into a Hollywood movie. Um, but, you know, that wasn't a kind of a, a flippant project. You know, it was an attempt to take a phenomenon that had been used in an explicitly racist way to denigrate an entire people in their remarkable religious worldview and, and to try, try to make sense out of it. Uh, you know, it's interesting, were I to ask you to name the great religions of the world, what would you say? Islam, Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, whatever, there's always one continent left out, sub-Saharan Africa, the tacit assumption being that people south of the Sahara in Africa had no religious beliefs. Well, of course they did. And voodoo is not a black magic cult, it's a complex metaphysical worldview. The word voodoo is just a fond word from Dahomey that means spirit or God. And in many ways, voodoo is a quintessentially democratic faith because the believer has direct access to the divine. As, as Haitians often said to me, you white people go to church and speak about God. We dance in the temple and become God. And so that project, which was an attempt to find the, 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 the formula of a folk preparation, said to bring on a state of apparent death so profound that it, it, it um, could fool Western physicians, as had indeed happened in a very provocative case. You know, I was sort of sent down to find that drug for medical research, but I found myself, of course, not exploring. I mean, no drug can make a social phenomenon, but I was exploring the sort of social um, religious, political, psychological, spiritual dimensions of a chemical possibility as I tried to make sense of sensation. And the reason, of course, we think of voodoo as black magic is because Haiti was the only independent black nation for 100 years. It, bu it bought shipments of, America, of slaves destined for the American slave market and granted them freedom. It funded Simon Bolivar on the condition that he freed the slaves in Grand Colombia. And the U.S. Marine Corps occupied Haiti in the 19... 20s and everybody above the rank of sergeant got a book contract and these were mostly marines from the american south during the era of jim crow and the books had names like cannibal cousins black baghdad uh, voodoo fire in haiti the magic island the white king of lagonave a puritan in voodoo land there were dozens of these books all of them filled with um, pins and needles and voodoo dolls that don't exist, children bred for the cauldron, zombies crawling out of the grave to attack people. And, and they gave rise to the RKO movies of the 1940s, Night of the Living Dead. And they essentially said to the American people that any country where such abominations occurred could only find its redemption through military occupation. And all of it was utterly and totally false. So that book was an attempt to, to reveal the beauty of, of the African spiritual worldview. And all of my books have had that kind of mission in the same sense that the, the book Magdalena, River of Dreams, the latest one, is, is trying to present to the world through empathy and grace and love um, the true dimensions of, of, a, of a country that in many quarters has been reduced to caricature, utterly unjustly, utterly unfairly. And if people knew the true beauty and wonder of Colombia, they'd realize that the only danger of traveling to Colombia is a distinct possibility that you will never want to leave. You mentioned some similarities in, in the sense that people, um, migrants in, in Colombia from Venezuela or from Colombia to Venezuela, um, have something in common with the people here who are being chased out of their countries and they're disenfranchised and they get treated as as lesser human beings because of their essentially because of their circumstances but do you draw any other parallels between um the history of colombia and the history of certain countries in this part of the world well you know i i i i don't have a great deal of experience in the middle east but of course i've traveled in egypt and jordan and uh, uh further north in turkey um, um, you know, I recently uh, was in Jerusalem and I, and I needed to lecture to uh, an audience of mostly wealthy Americans, um, conservative Americans about the 
Middle East conflict. And I had been sort of peripherally, obviously, like any other educated person, aware of the conflict. My own, my own father-in-law, uh, uh, Senator Charles Percy, who was um, almost president of the United States, he turned down Nixon's offer of the vice presidency, and he was also instrumental in Watergate, um, and and was a really remarkable liberal um, Republican. Uh, and he he had devoted his life to peace in the Middle East, um, uh, and eventually he was, um, um, you know, he he was um, driven out of office, frankly, by the um, Israeli lobby in the United States because he had been in favor as Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chairman of the uh, selling of the AWACS early um, warning uh, planes to Saudi Arabia. And, and this provoked the the wrath of of of, of Israel, the Israeli community. Um, but he was never anti-Israel. He was pro Middle Peace, and and he he his feeling was that the 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 that the, the American foreign policy shouldn't be held hostage by one side of the conflict. And he worked all of his career um, to try to both encourage Americans to see that, but also to do what he could working through personal diplomacy to bring peace to that region. Um, I, or be part of the peace process. Um, it, it struck me as I read a number of books and, you know, in preparation, you know, as I was going to go to, um, um, to Israel uh, for the first time, um, one of the things I had noticed in my wanderings in Jordan was this sort of fantastic condensation of geography, how you could begin to walk um, from a dry desert um, across a landscape, uh, which from a Canadian point of view was was so minuscule in scale, and, and gradually see the the the, the landscape um, becoming more and more arable, and you suddenly realized how every square centimeter of land was was significant, and and that was an eye opener for a Canadian because of course we could throw the entire Middle East or you know certainly Israel into any part of Canada and the Israelis would never find it. Um, and, uh, uh, but, but my, I had a, a graduate student who was, um, um, a, a Jewish scholar and son of a rabbi and his father, his grandfather had been a great Zionist who had actually been encouraging the, the reestablishment of a, of a new land in Africa. That was one of the possibilities before the, um, creation of the state of Israel. And, um, so, so Shefa was by no means, uh, anti is Israel, but he 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 gave me a couple of books that were really uh, illuminating, and and they were both written by sons of Zionists, but they both raised the the the, the, the presented the story of the Middle East as being a conflict less between land, less between certainly water rights, all of those issues being important, but ultimately being. Um, being, being um, a conflict between narratives, you know, who was going to control the narrative? In other words, you you had for 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 1900 years the Jewish people in exile, with this kind of lingering and ongoing inspiration of the lost homeland, um, a place that had sort of drifted from history into the realm of myth, but but the, but the notion of return was was always lurking uh, and inspiring and, 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 and so on. And then the challenge coming by the fact that when, when finally a return to the homeland, obviously it was not a single step, but through the 20th century and the early years of the 20th century, as, it, as immigration grew, uh, there was a cold inconvenience set in the 1900 years of Israeli abs of Jewish absence. Um, a Palestinian culture had set had, had um, rooted in those in those lands, and 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 in a way, the presence of the Palestinians um, was inconvenient to the narrative of the Zionist dream. And so, in 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 time, it, it was fine for the the Palestinians to inhabit the landscape in a kind of biblical sense, evocative of the fantasy of of the ancient homeland. Um, but but as for intellectual Palestinians, a, a mercantile class um, that that created such a prosperous uh, Palestine. This simply wouldn't do. So, in a sense, the 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 re the recreation uh, was about reinventing a narrative. Um, it was about uh, you know suggesting that the Palestine had been a barren place that was only brought to 
to uh, fecundity through the efforts of of the kibbutz and the, and the Zionist, you know, rehabilitation of space, which is simply, you know, statistically absolutely not the case. Um, it, it was about it was about in time, literally, sort of uh, re wiping out the very nomenclature of place, um, not just destroying villages, um, both literally and metaphorically, but also wiping out names and place names that had had um, defined the spirit of place of Palestinian people. And then, of course, critically, um, uh, when Palestine and Palestine leaders um, rejected the partition that was proposed by the united nations and you know and and then as the war was provoked um that israel israel um unexpectedly in a sense won in 1948 and when the de- critical decision was made by the israeli leadership at that time not to permit the right of return all the palestinians who had simply been displaced as refugees are by all wars when they were denied the right of return, that frankly set in motion um, um, the conflict that that lingers to this day. Um, and and you know, I, I, I quoted in the piece I wrote uh, a, a very thoughtful Palestinian scholar who who says, you know, that that essentially the impossibility of the Palestinian situation, where where to simply raise these historical facts that, you know, Ben-Gurion really did say the people can't come back, that the old groves were cut down, that the mosques were destroyed, you know, and all, you know, just to raise these issues um, is to be seen as being somehow unseemly in plight company, uh, like passing wind at a cocktail party or something like that, you know, uh, and, 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 and to be labeled as a terrorist. And so it, it strikes me, and I, I, I say this with not a hint of anti-Semitism or anti-Israel uh, um, uh, sentiment, that ultimately what has seemed to have happened is the displacement of the Palestinians um, and their own positionality in a kind of uh, endless and interminable vacuum of, of isolation, uh, uh, unhinged to place, um, uh, has, has ultimately made the Palestinians the new Zionists in the sense that now it's their turn to yearn for a place that they will never be able to return to, in a sense, and and that seems to me to be the 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 essence of the conflict in the Middle East. And as we move further and further away of my own father-in-law's dream of a two-state solution as the only way out of the conundrum, um, it's hard to see how the weight of history will not continue to weigh weigh upon unjustly the soul of the Palestinian people. Well. I, I think you also made an excellent point uh, earlier about how Colombia was painted as a caricature um, and how those writing the narrative kind of create these caricatures about uh, on countries around the world that you, I think I would argue that in the Middle East, that's certainly the case um, from an Eastern perspective. They have a certain idea that they've formed in their minds based on the narrative. Certainly, people in Saudi Arabia would agree with that. They always uh, feel like they're being portrayed like, you know, people in the desert on camels when well, in know, fact... Well, you know, I, 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 I try... When, right after 9-11, you know, I was working at National Geographic and, and you know, the, the, the purpose of anthropology is to make the world safe for human differences. You know, they... The lesson of anthropology is that every culture has something to say. Each deserves to be heard, just as none has monopoly on the route to divine. The other peoples of the world aren't failed attempts at being modern. They're not failed attempts at being you or me or us. You know, every culture is a unique answer to a fundamental question. What does it mean to be human and alive? And when the peoples of the world answer that question, they do so in the 7,000 voices of humanity. And I, after 9-11, with all the anti Uh, Muslim hysteria, anti-Islamic hysteria, I wanted to tell a story about the nature and the purity of Islam. So I traveled to Mali, and we went to Timbuktu, where you can hold in your hand embossed documents dated to the 10th century, 
uh, the repository of knowledge uh, when Timbuktu rivaled Damascus and Cairo and Baghdad as centers of Islamic learning, when there were 25,000 university students in, in a place at a time when Paris was a mud hovel. And, and um, you, you, you could hold these documents, that not just of, 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 of religious texts, but of, of botany, of chemistry, of astronomy. And, and, uh, and, and it was a way of trying to remind um, the American audience in particular that, that the entire glory of the ancient Greeks only survived to inform the Renaissance because it was held in the repository of the great Islamic scholars like Avicenna and the documents of Timbuktu. And then we, we traveled north to a thousand kilometers uh, into an ancient salt mine called Taudeni, where the salt wasn't a condiment, it was the sacred essence of the desert. It once traded ounce for ounce for gold from West Africa, you know, during the time before the discovery of the New World, when uh, two thirds of Europe's gold came from Equatorial West Africa, 52 days overland from um, uh, Timbuktu to Marrakesh. And two events happened at the mine, which was a totally biblical scene, a place out of time. Um, uh, uh, where I met a, a man who was chronologically younger than me, but broken in body from years in the pits. He had been caught in debt peonage for having borrowed money from a merchant uh, to save his child. And he was trapped in debt. And I, his debt turned out to be less than a, a dinner for four in New York. Uh, so I paid him the money. And then a yellow mist of sand swept across the 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 the, the site where he lived in a hut of stone slabs with only the rags on his back as his possessions. And he disappeared in this kind of uh, sandstorm. And I never knew if the money had bought him his freedom, whether he was telling me the truth, whether he's pulling my leg, whether he was killed for the money I gave him. I never knew. But I just, his last words were to thank Allah for the grace of, 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 of this moment. And then as I came south, we came on a, a caravan going uh, no, uh, that we had met as we came north and they were heading south and the slabs of salt had gotten wet in an unusual rainstorm. And if it gets wet, it breaks and loses all, all values. So the caravan of seven or eight boys, uh, all the wealth of their families had been forced to stop in the desert to let the salt dry out for three days. And there's no margin of error in that 20 day march to the mine. Um, and so the, the entire group were down to a liter or two of water. And they had just sent off one of their members to walk 25 kilometers to a hole in the desert where they might be able to squeeze some water off the clay. Um, and, and there they were 250 kilometers from the nearest well. And as soon as we came upon them, what did they do? They kindled a twig fire and with their last supplies of water, brewed us tea, honoring the Bedouin and, uh, um, uh, uh, adage that you will kill the last goat that keeps your children alive with its milk to feed a wandering stranger because you never know when you will be that stranger, needy and cold and hungry coming out of the desert in the middle of the night. And as I watched Muhammad pour me that first cup of sweet tea, I thought to myself, these are the moments that allow us all as human beings to hope. Hmm. I want to ask you this, uh, a little bit on a different note. You've studied psychoactive plants. Um, you've studied extensively uh, botany. Um, from you know, You've experienced it personally. Do you think that psychoactive plants can be useful um, for raising humanity's consciousness in some way? Have we mistakenly shut the door on these in modern urban societies uh, in, in, in favor of all these processed drugs and pharmaceuticals? Well, I, I, you know, uh, there's a lot in that question. First, first of all, psychoactive substances have a completely ambivalent potential for good or evil. They, they create a certain template upon which psychological forces, even spiritual forces, can be unleashed. Um, but much depends on the set and setting of, of, of the individual, the mental set brought to the experience of physical setting in which the substance is taken. And remember that the, 
the distribution of these substances is unusual. You know, 90% of them are from the new world because the use of the plants is rooted in culture and in other parts of the world, whether it's the Buddhist tradition in, in um, the subcontinent uh, or, or spirit possession in West Africa, people have found other ways to other doorways to the gods, if you will. But in the Americas, traditionally, in the Amerindian civilizations, the use of these plants represented sort of the spark of consciousness, the, the doorway, if you will, to the gods. Um, and, they, and they certainly have great potential in clinical practice, but not in counterpoint to the use of pharmaceutical drugs, for example. I mean, you know, there's a tendency to, to, be, to be critical of, of allopathic medicine particularly in the West, well, you know, but I believe you me, if either of us cut off an arm in a car accident, we wouldn't want to be taken to a shaman or to an herbalist. I mean, we are literally living through a period where, where allopathic medicine, traditional Western medicine, has once again come to the fore to literally save us. I mean, think about it. Until um, COVID, the fastest development of any vaccine uh, in history was four years for months for months you know we've 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 witnessed the development of of countless different kinds of vaccines to treat this corona virus in in less than a year which is absolutely astonishing so i think we should continue to honor the best of allopathic medicine but recognize that specificity is its greatest asset i mean the the, the allopathic model of of the body is as if it's a machine that can be uh, treated and parts changed and parts fixed um and and you know, for most traditional societies, um, that kind of dexterity uh, does not exist, but in its place comes a certain sensitivity to the totality of the human experience. And where shamanic medicine can come to the fore is when it treats issues of the emotions, issues of psychological, issues of the uh, the, the mind-body interaction that we all know to be to be um, a, a real thing. You know, psychosomatic doesn't mean fake, it means mind-body. And we all know that we rarely get sick the day after we fall in love, but we often fall ill the day after our lover leaves us, you know? So so there is this element um, there. And and I think the what 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 psychedelics can do um, in the proper context is is re, re um, um, rekindle a visceral sense of the divine, um, the wonder and beauty of nature, and appreciation for our place as sentient beings on a living planet, which is now more essential than ever. And this ultimately is is the gift of indigenous people. You know, in the Western tradition. Uh, uh, we are, like any culture, a product of our own history. And as we tried in Europe to liberate ourselves from the tyranny of absolute faith, we threw out all notions of myth, magic, mysticism, but of, above all, metaphor. And as Descartes kind of deanimated the world, this, the world became seen as a stage upon which only the human drama unfurled. And science made a house cleaning of belief. We deanimated the world such that the mountain was just a pile of rock ready to be mined. Well, most societies around the world think very differently. And the triumph of secular materialism of the West, despite its power, dominance, and ubiquity, shouldn't imply that it's a norm. It's the anomaly. The more consistent relationship that human societies have developed is not one based on extraction, but based on reciprocity. The idea that the simple idea that the earth owes its bounty to humans, but humans in turn own their fidelity uh, to the earth. And that's celebrated through ritual and, 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 and in very Baroque ways, but it's a fundamental uh, idea that has real consequences because if you believe, for example, that a mountain is in fact a deity that will direct your destiny, uh, you're going to have a different relationship to it than if you believe it's a pile of rock, and particularly in terms of the the ecological footprint of your culture. So, what we need to discover, and what COVID is urging us to discover, is the realization that we are all biological beings on a living planet, and in the scheme of things. You know, faced with uh, with the challenges of uh, the existential challenges, for example, of climate change, the 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 bloody and trivial 
um, uh, conflicts that seem to consume the human soul in places like the Middle East, in places like Colombia, uh, you know, perpetrated by great powers like the United States, which since World War II has never stood down to this day. The Americans have soldiers in over 150 countries since the 1970s. America has never been at peace. China's not gone to war. Every three years it pours more spent cement than America did in the entire 20th century. China's been building up its infrastructure, whereas America has spent $6 trillion in recent debacles in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, which have achieved nothing but further destruction of these great civilizations and the agonies that have been brought to their people. You know, let's try for once, if we could possibly step back from the trivial uh, conflicts of our lives and seek the better angels of our nature and recognize that vision of the earth from space um, that told us that we are inhabitants on a blue planet. Everybody who thinks to raise a gun in violence should remember the lesson that I learned on the highest mountain in the world. And that is the fact that there is a place on earth where you can get up in the morning, brew your coffee, have your breakfast, put on your boots, and with your own locomotion, walk into a zone where oxygen deprivation is so severe that human life is not possible. That is how thin is the layer of life that surrounds this blue planet. And that's what we should be thinking about every moment, our, 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 our anger and our, and, and our greed and, and the worst components of the human uh, experience raise their, their ugly head in conflict and bloodshed. Wise words indeed. I feel like you're reading my mind. I was going to ask you so many questions that you answered um, without me even ha having to ask. So uh, we're so fortunate to have had you here today. Um, Wade Davis, thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's been a fascinating conversation. God bless you all. Take care. And best of luck with all your projects. You bet. That's it for today. Wade's new book is called Magdalena, River of Dreams, and it's out now. I highly recommend it and anything by Wade Davis, for that matter. I hope you enjoyed the show today. If you did, let us know by clicking the subscribe button. That way, you'll know when our next episode is out. See you next time. <laughs>